thing on. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. Um, it is good to be here. Um, it, it, I serve on the GO team, and uh, Becky and um, the people that are on this team are, it's kind of like having three or four MVPs on the same team on the starting lineup. It's a little complicated for a guy like me to go, uh, they literally say get out of the way and we'll take care of everything. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, it's a joy to serve with them because they're excellent at it. So uh, let's pray and then we'll dig in. Okay, um, Father, um, I need you. Uh, we need you. I don't know why you use um, broken people to deliver your perfect message, but you do. And I just pray that you... Um, Help me honor that. Give us ears to hear uh, and hearts to accept and the courage and faith to move accordingly. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're continuing our study in Colossians. Now James has done an excellent job um, so far carrying us through this uh, first part of Colossians, as he always does. Um, my hope is to do well in covering today's passage. Our text today is Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, if you want to look it up. Uh, one of the things I love about walking longer and hopefully deeper and, and closer with Jesus is a growing focus that I have on eternity. Uh, maybe it's part of just getting older. I don't know. Realizing that I'm not going to live forever. Uh, but as I pray to God's, for God to cause His desires to become my desires, uh, I find myself thinking more and more about eternity. And more specifically, what does and does not matter in light of eternity. For me, it's fun to think about eternity. It fills me with joy. It fills me with excitement. It causes the issue of the day or whatever issues of the day are going on to kind of fall by the wayside. And that's a good thing. Uh, and I'm not talking about head in the clouds kind of stuff. I'm not talking about avoiding important things that I'm called to deal with. I'm talking about fighting the right fight. <clears throat> what I mean is that seemingly with every passing day, uh, I view things through a lens of eternity. Does what I'm doing and what I'm seeing and what I'm reading is what I'm passionate about worthy of an eternal uh, point of view. Does it matter from an eternal perspective? Um, God has graciously caused me to see eternal value in my work and what I do every day. Um, he lets me see eternal value in cutting up with friends and cutting up with family uh, and having close friends that know things about me that are embarrassing. But this question can also be difficult for me to answer because not all things, many of which I like, are worthy of eternal uh, thoughts or, or, or eternal things. One of those is possessions. I like possessions. I like some things, you know. Um, also vacations. I mean, these are good things that can be gifts from God, but they can become too important if I'm not careful. Now, I don't mean that I'm becoming a minimalist. That's not what I'm talking about. I still like nice things if I can afford them. But overall, there's a changing of my desires to things that God has shown me in His Word that are of eternal value. One of these is the church, the local church. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love the church. And I'm not sure why from a practical and earthly standpoint. I mean, church life can be muddy. Uh, in the church, we're all sheep, okay? Which means we're ultimately totally, totally helpless. Okay, and we need shepherding desperately. God made clear that shepherding is one of the things that He wants me to do. He's given me a joy to do it, and I want to do it better than I can do on my own. But God has His ways of reminding me that I need shepherding too. 
I'm a lamb shepherding other lambs. And that's weird. It's just weird. Um, one example, and that's not always weird, but it is weird a lot. One example is in our text today. I, I think I drew the short straw. Um, the last few sermons I've preached have been a lot of fun to wrestle with and prepare for and preach. But today, not so much. I'm just being transparent with you. The main reason is because it's heavy. Today's passage, Paul is addressing the church being attacked from within. Not from without, not from outside, but from within. By some smooth talkers who are empty on the inside. It's heavy. And his warnings are serious. And I have a lot that I want to say. One of my friends who will remain nameless said that his son loves when he finds out that I'm preaching because he just never knows when, it, when I might go off and like say something that is a little edgy. But I do have a lot that I want to say, but I'm pretty sure that it would be too much Billy. Um, and so I've done my best with the Holy Spirit's help to streamline our time today to focus on what Jesus has to say to his church. Okay, so my focus in my prayer is less Billy and more Jesus. Okay. Now, the church has always been under attack. This is not new. Criticizing the church, even from those inside the church, has been a cool thing to do for a really long time. There are those who like to criticize, or maybe I should say critique, the church for its seemingly numerous imperfections. Over the last decade or so, um, I found myself growing more and more reluctant to criticize the church as a whole, uh, particularly with kind of blanket or global-like statements. Things like the problem with the church is blank. The reason is simple. The church is the bride of Christ. When I give an account to Jesus one day, which scripture makes clear that we all will, even if we're saved, I don't want to have to explain why I smacked around Jesus' bride. Now, imagine the scene. Hey, Billy, nice job. But I got, I got something I need you to explain to me. Why did you hit my wife? I mean, that's a question that I don't want to have to answer. And I don't think you do either. Now, something tells me there may be one or two people listening to me or hearing me that might need to think about an answer to that question. But again, the church has always been under attack. And again, the reason is because the church is the bride of Christ. It's literally the most important entity on the planet. From an eternal standpoint, there is nothing more important than the church. And there's not even a close second. When Jesus returns again, it will be to get his bride, the church. It's the rapture of the church. Our enemy, Satan, knows this and has always been doing whatever he can to, to muddy the church, to thwart the church. What's a bit odd to me is that for some reason God has seen fit to allow some of the enemy's schemes to work successfully. I'm not sure why. Hopefully in eternity we'll find out. But in the end, what I have seen is that all of it always serves God's purposes. And in the meantime, we have to stay vigilant and study Scripture, such as Paul's words in our passage today, to protect the church. And I'm talking about the church global and also our little outpost here. I'm talking specifically about Christ's point. The Colossian church was being attacked by its cultured and seemingly educated enemies. And this sounds familiar. The church's enemies today are typically sophisticated and highly thought of. They often hold the advanced degree. They're the educated and the wise people in the eyes of the world, those that are highly thought of in many circles. The good news is that in our text today, the Apostle Paul issues a warning that has ultimately brought deliverance to all those who would listen and submit to it. Now, when I preach, I need help. 
And so I'm thankful that I can uh, have been able to be encouraged by the work of Kent Hughes and John Piper. These are wise guys and so wise people. (laughs) Uh, And I'm grateful that I can lean into their wisdom. So let's read our, our passage today, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, if you want to follow along. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lot there. Uh, now, anytime the first verse in a, that I read in a passage begins with something like, therefore, I recognize that it's a continuation of a thought from the writer. James likes to say um, it's important that you need to understand what the therefore is there for. That's cute. Uh, in the earlier verses of chapter 2, Paul is stating how his audience, Jesus' followers, again the church, is alive in Christ. Verses 13 through 15, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here Paul is is making it abundantly clear that Christ has canceled our debt. And not only canceled it, he's put the enemy, rulers and authorities, to open shame. James talked about this last week when he said it's like a fighter who's knocked out his foe and he's standing over him kind of like, bring it on, he's victorious. So now Paul goes, goes into our text today where he transitions to give some strong warnings. And I can sense Paul urging his readers to understand that because of what Christ has done, they and us today are not subject to the things that he's going to cover. I've put our text today into three sections. There are three warnings. First is a warning against legalism. Second is a warning against mysticism. And third is a warning against asceticism. Okay? Serious stuff. Let's dig in. First, uh, a warning against legalism. Reading verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul here is covering two areas, the food they ate and certain special days. Now, regarding food, there were evidently those in the Colossian church who were saying that the way to God in spiritual fullness would be enhanced if the Colossian believers returned to these dietary laws from the Old Testament. Leviticus 11 in the Old Testament categorized certain foods as clean and unclean. Part of why God did this was for spiritual reasons. The distinctions between foods were meant to familiarize the Israelites with the facts surrounding purity and impurity. 
and to stimulate their conscience in everyday life. In other words, they were meant to draw the people to God. But when Jesus came, he abolished these dietary laws. In Mark 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who were offended by Jesus, apparently because of his liberal eating habits. Jesus says, Then are you also without understanding that you do not, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Paul furthers this in 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8, Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So the New Testament is unified in telling us that all food and drink are lawful. Now, of course, our diet matters in life on this earth, right? I mean, if we eat too much processed food, if we eat too many Cheetos and Big Macs and too much ice cream, we might not live as long, okay? And we might have some illnesses that we struggle with in the meantime. But... Dietary discipline is not a sign of spirituality. I know some really healthy eaters that are not believers. And I'm guessing you do too. We are not to judge others as sheep or goats based on food and drink. And these, the issue that these quote-unquote leaders were saying, they were saying that what Jesus did at Calvary was not enough. Okay, So they were adding to the gospel. In other words, they were saying that Jesus plus correct diet equals righteousness. In addition, these same people were saying the same thing about certain special days. Now, if there was ever a group of people that observed special days, it was the Israelites. I mean, I've read commentary on things that Jesus said where scholars refer to a festival time when Jesus said what he said. And they don't even try to figure out what festival it was. There were so many. They had their special feast days that are talked about in Leviticus 25 their new moon celebrations in Isaiah, and their Sabbaths that are talked about in Exodus 20. But again, when Christ came, He fulfilled them all. So they and we are no longer required to keep a list of days that we have to observe or we're going to be in trouble. Now we worship on the Lord's Day that's talked about in Revelation 1, which is the first day of the week. This is also the day that commemorates the resurrection from John 20. In verse 17 of our text, Paul says that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all these dietary rules and special days, they had a role to play in the Old Testament. But they've always been just a shadow, and the real thing has come in Christ. So, the question comes up, why would these teachers, these false teachers, want to focus on things like diet and special days? What's their, what's their point? The short answer is pride. This is nothing more than legalism. Uh, now, we need to define our terms. So I looked up uh, the term legalism, and I really like John Piper's definition. Legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. In other words, legalism will be present wherever a person is trying to be ethical in his own strength. That is, without relying on the merciful help of God in Christ. Simply put, moral behavior that is not from faith is legalism. So legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power so that we can earn God's favor. Now legalism can be alluring. It's even addictive. The reason is pretty simple. Legalism makes whatever we're doing ultimately all about us. 
the better I perform, the better I look. Now, some of us, for various reasons, are really good performers. We like how we stack up against other people, or at least how we think we stack up. On the surface, the focus on diet and days appears orderly and good, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a very bad thing. Mark Driscoll gave that definition of idolatry a number of years ago. Idolatry is when a good thing becomes a God thing, and that's a bad thing. The result is that we miss the point. We sin. And if we're not granted repentance, it does not end well because at the same time, we ignore other deadly sins like resentments and covetousness and gossip and slander and even hatred. We become cold in our calculating approach to protect our image. I've known some pretty cold people in the church before. I'm guessing one or two of you have. You get the feeling that they're always sizing you up and you're always letting them down. They expect a lot, and they appear to meet their own requirements, at least on the surface. But for whatever reason, I know that ultimately I don't measure up. Legalism limits us to shallow self-righteousness, and if unrepented and left in place, it will damn us. Interestingly, Paul does not say uh, to forbid keeping special days or special diets. Instead, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in these things. Do it if you want to. Don't do it if you don't want to. In that way, the gospel frees us, which is so amazing. By surrendering ourselves to Christ, we gain everything. And there is great freedom in what we as Christians can do. We can keep special days and diets or not. Now, maybe some of us should be on a diet. I don't know. But it's not required to go to heaven. That's the point. Paul outright rejects the right of anyone to judge or compel another to comply with his own preferences in these matters. We are not to judge others by these things, and we're not to allow others to judge us. I believe this is a strong warning for the church to guard against legalism. Because if legalism settles in the church, the church becomes judgmental, joyless, cold, and ultimately empty. Now, as bad as legalism is, the next one is just as bad. We come to Paul's second warning, a warning against mysticism. Okay, first was a warning against legalism. Now is a warning against mysticism. Now, when we use the term mysticism, again, we've got to define our terms. So I Googled it, and I like this definition. Mysticism is the belief that union with or absorption into the deity may be attained through contemplation and self-surrender. Okay? The term mysticism is not in and of itself unbiblical. I mean, in the correct context, Christian mysticism is focused on a deeper knowledge of God, and that can be a good thing. But what Paul is talking about here is a deceptive mysticism that is not rooted in Christ. Let's read verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. In the context that Paul is describing here, the Colossian church was facing a mysticism that comes from a group known as the Gnostics. Okay, Gnostics practiced Gnosticism. I'm emphasizing that because it's hard for me to say. What is Gnosticism? The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, which means knowledge. 
Okay, the Gnostics believed that there was a mysterious or secret knowledge reserved for those with true understanding. Okay, and this special understanding is what saved people, not the death, resurrection, uh, death, a life, death, and resurrection of Christ. When I was growing up, so in other words, Jesus was not enough. Okay, when I was growing up, we attended Pentecostal churches. It was a hoot. Okay, I loved it for the most part. I really did. Seriously, I was saved for all eternity in this upbringing, and for this I am literally eternally grateful. But, and there always seems to be a but, certain Pentecostal settings tend to attract a certain type of person. Maybe you've uh, run into these people. People who like to be sure that everybody in the room knows about their special knowledge and their special understanding of spiritual things. Now, Maybe you've experienced people like this. They're the ones that have the special word from you or they had a dream about you and they want to come up and tell you. They feel compelled to tell you this. Now, I'm not, don't over, I, I'm, Paul talks about in other parts of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, about an appropriateness of speaking in tongues with interpretations and prophecy and those kind of things. There's an orderliness to it that, that makes it right. What he's talking about here is very different. And in my experience, after interacting or talking with people like this, I feel like, A, either they, have a, they really do have an end with God that I don't have and have no chance of ever getting, or B, they're full of it. Seriously, I've always struggled with these types of people. And one reason is because I've noticed a pattern where often they can insert themselves as the glue holding whatever we're talking about together. Maybe it's unintentional, maybe it's not. As you may know, our reason for existing as a church at Christ Point is to point people to Jesus. We as elders have prayed over and discussed this so much and we continue to do it. For me personally, I believe that I'm to practice this in all of my relationships, pointing people to Jesus. I'm not the glue holding my wife's life together. Jesus is. I'm not the glue holding my kids' lives together. Jesus is. As an elder at Christ Point, I'm not the glue holding Christ Point together. Jesus is. Now, this is not a cop-out to not lead or shepherd or prepare. It's not an out clause to give up on godly living. It's a recognition that, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Gnostics, on the other hand, they did not decrease. They made it all about them. They believed that they were extra special. The bottom line is the Gnostics in the Colossian church were really good at pretending. And they fooled not only themselves, but the Colossian believers. What's interesting is that Paul's warning is not to the Gnostics. His warning is to the believers, to the church. What he actually says is that the Colossians were in danger of being deprived of their reward and future glory by these kooks. I mean, this is serious business. The Gnostics' power to fool people came from deception. Their theology was way off. This is described in verse 18. Paul says they use false humility by insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. So they love to act humble and say, we're not good enough to go directly to God. We're going to pray to one of his angels, and over time we can work our way up the food chain to God. That's not biblical. The Gnostics also claim to have special revelations, as verse 18 says, going on in detail about visions. So they had special access to special visions and special messages. You're probably noticing a pattern. They're on the inside, and you're not. And this is the very definition of pride. 
The Gnostics were, according to Paul, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. So they promoted their own humility while being filled with conceit. And this is how vanity operates. It's a sham. But we're still human. We're sheep. And for many of us, if we're not careful, we find ourselves drawn to somehow learning the secrets of the Spirit. I mean, sheep want to be special too, right? (laughs) So why do you think tarot cards are so popular? I mean, they exude mystery and they fill people with lies. Or these zodiac signs. I mean, how many people fall for this? I wonder how many people listening to me now are going, hey, that stuff's legit. I mean, seriously. How easily we can fall prey to false teaching, especially when we as the church can often seem to know not as much of God's Word as maybe we should. So when a teaching comes along that feels right and adds just a tad extra, we can slide right into being caught up in it. But Paul gets to the root of the problem in verse 19. He is not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. This is serious. Paul is saying that these false teachers had no part in the true body of Christ. The same is true for the false teachers today. They are not part of the true church. We're not talking about a Jesus follower that got a little bit sidetracked. We're talking about wolves. These people are going to hell. And they're taking as many people or trying to take as many people with them as they can. Also, this word from Paul in verse 19 was and is the actual answer for those of us who want to stand strong against this false teaching. We have to hold fast to Christ the head. He will nourish us and cause us to grow as God intends. And this leads to Paul's third warning, a warning against asceticism. So the first was a warning against legalism, then a warning against mysticism, and now a warning against asceticism. Let's read the last part of our uh, passage today, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here Paul warns against extreme asceticism. So again, we've got to define our terms. What is asceticism? Asceticism is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Just remember, severe self-discipline. Spiritual discipline is good. But here Paul is not talking about spiritual discipline. He's warning against extreme asceticism. Again, anytime a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And from what I've read and studied, church history is filled with stories of disciplines taken to the extreme. The rejection of beautiful and good things supposedly in pursuit of God. Like the rejection of marriage, or the rejection of sex in marriage, rejection of uh, having children, parenthood, even rejection of ourselves. This self-made religion does not do good. It does not do any good. In fact, it can heighten temptation to sin in ways that are dangerous. And at the same time, it produces a joyless and a defensive and ultimately a weak way of life. What's weird is that this extreme asceticism has its own seductiveness to it. Again, in our time today, we hear about cultured elite who turn to Eastern religions and gurus to somehow be able to check the God box. 
What this is really is an expression of independence from God that says, I'm going to get to God on my own terms, by my own might, and in my own way. And Paul gives us the answer to this delusion in verse 20. We have with Christ died to the elemental spirits of the world. Our death in Christ by having Him as our Savior has freed us from the demonic powers of this world that promote and thrive on human asceticism. And because we died with Christ, they have no actual power over us. But Paul has sounded a clear warning, a calling for us to look at these things as they really are. So we need to let this sink in and live in the full joy of our relationship with God and His creation and His people. The reality is this, and don't miss this, okay? I'm wrapping up. Stay with me to the end. You'll be glad you did. Um, In Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. These verses are so beautiful and all-encompassing. Nothing needs to be added to them. And In that way, the gospel just blows me away. On one hand, it's so simple. And on the other hand, it's earth-shatteringly complex. If the Spirit doesn't open our eyes, we won't see it. One verse I love, that I always come back to, is Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, He, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I can't get over this. Every time I see or hear or read about a non-believer with supposedly vast intelligence, maybe almost unlimited and uncountable wealth, and considered to have so much worldly wisdom, they can't ascertain or accept what my teenage son, who's on the autism spectrum, understands, accepts, and enjoys. That blows me away. The gospel is so complete and filling. But we can lose the benefits of that fullness if we wander off. We can fall to legalism and its self-righteous pride and judgmentalism. We can succumb to mysticism and develop a proud and elitist spirit that contributes nothing to worship. Or we can become enslaved by asceticism and extreme requirements, thinking that it will make us more holy, when actually it will only serve to send us into the ditch. The answer to legalism is Jesus. The continual reliance on the grace of Christ. The answer to mysticism is Jesus. A deep understanding of our relationship to Christ and that the gospel doesn't need our special insight. And the answer to asceticism is, guess what? Jesus. Living by faith that we have died and been buried and are resurrected with Christ. The answer is the gospel. The G, uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you never remember another formula or another thing you learned in math, remember that. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Again, it's simple. And yet it's so impossible to do without the Holy Spirit in us and changing us. He has to finish what he started. The great news for us is that he will because he said he would. Let's pray. Uh, Father, 
Again, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the gospel that just becomes sweeter and sweeter seemingly every day. That's a gift from you. That doesn't happen without your spirit allowing it to happen. I pray that that happens for everyone listening or hearing this today. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.